you know, there's been so much change that's happened over the last two years, and it hasn't been from a position of, you know, thinking about opportunity. It has has been from a, a more of a threat focused, or For we sure. have to do these things to protect ourselves. So <clears throat> there's a, I mean, again, some of the complacency that happens right now is from that position. So when you can come to a person and say, hey, I'm going to resource this, then that can get that energy going, thinking, okay, then, then this, is, this is going to move us into a positive, something new and exciting, not just one more thing on my plate that is not resourced. Hello, everybody. I'm Rachel Phillips-Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources. You've joined us for Cap and Gown. Matt, thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Boisvert, Service President. It's great to join you today. Oh, my gosh, you guys, I have missed you. So we have had two weeks, I mean, off, but I've been sad because I text Matt at 2 o'clock on Tuesday for the last two weeks and say we should be doing our should podcast doing right this. now. We had illness. We had um, COVID in our office two weeks ago. And then last week we were on a campus. So we have had to delay, but we're super happy. I'm glad to see all of you joining us. Um, let's see. It is February. This is the shortest month. Thank goodness, because it is also known as the hardest month, Yeah, both for our students and for our colleagues. It seems like Every conference we go to scheduled February. For sure. So February and October, you know, are the times when we just are going back to back to back. Um, it's really nice to have a team so that um, you remember, Matt, in the early days, you and I just would have to go to all of them. Um, but it's really nice to have a team so we can spread that out. But we are going to a lot of conferences this month. And so hopefully we'll see some of you guys at those conferences um, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, okay. Remember our theme is change. So um, we are talking about this book, John Cotter and change. I want to start. What's that? Well, I have a different book because I was thinking if we're going to get started on change, which your book, change- my Mine's called Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. What's yours called? And I wanted to go back to a time when it wasn't so volatile and uncertain. And this is, this is Cotter's earlier book called Leading Change. And I really like it because of the penguin. There's a penguin no, on, on the front. There's a penguin on the cover. But we're talking about change today. Yeah. And so I'll remind you that last time we were together, we were talking about moving from surviving change, which is just like, oh my gosh, everything's a wreck and changing. And then moving into thriving change, which is here's what I need to be able to thrive in the new year. So I am super excited about our topics today. We're going to actually go through the first two of his, what, like eight common errors when we're talking about change. So Uh I'm excited about that, but I have a lot of state of the union. I don't know if it's because we've taken a couple of weeks off or like it's a crazy month. There's just a lot going on. So let's let's jump into state of the union. Good news. The S&P raised their view of higher uh, education sector for 2022. So that's really nice. Basically, yeah, they've they've um, increased it to stable. So that ends four years of negative outlooks, which is really nice. Um, They're saying primarily the factors that are boosting colleges' financial performances are the federal relief funding, which we know we're getting more money in higher education even now for that federal funding, large investment gains in 2021, um, raising auxiliary revenues in the fall when things got back to normal a little bit. They're saying a lot of the risks that still exist are credit quality, um, enrollment pressures, inflation, staffing issues, cybersecurity breaches, and the possibility of events like governance scandals or social unrest. So there's still a lot of stuff we have to think about. Um, And also, it's an interesting report because they're like, yes, we're increasing this to stable, but there is so much variance yeah, for based sure. on the school we're talking about, right? So disparity. I mean, the difference between if you have a billion dollars in endowment, right, and a school that has fifteen million dollars in endowment. So 
de definitely there's a, a widespread on that, but yeah, overall, the, I mean, the nice thing is overall they're they're saying that, that the market has stabilized. Yeah. Um, when when two years ago there was so much uncertainty. For sure. So that's good news. Also, I'm so happy with the State of University of New York, which is the SUNY system. So they have stopped withholding transcripts for, for student debt. Matt, you remember you and I talked about an estimated 6.6 .6 million students have stranded credits. I mean, hold, so, on, hold, on, hold on, 6 million students. Yeah, six, that's, not, that's not like in SUNY, that's like 6 million students. Have stranded so it especially hits adult learners, low income students, those who are members of racial and ethnic minority groups. They're the ones who are most likely to have earned some college credit, but not a credential because institutions are withholding paperwork. So they're not allowing them to transfer with their transcript because they have this hold. Here's what I think is crazy town. I honestly cannot believe that this is true. A 2020 survey from the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers found that two-thirds of reporting colleges would put holds on transcripts for balances of less than $25. Yeah. So like in America, that's that's like 3,000 institutions. <laughs> what are we doing? I so you know. and I have talked about that standard um, credit, like the, sorry, stranded credits before and how it's really difficult. And the counterpoint to that is that this study estimates that colleges unpaid balances might be as much as $15 billion across the count of the country. So if you think about like, of course, for $25, we need to give people transcripts, but some schools are like building that into their budget. Like we have this much outstanding. And if we can get it from students, it's going to boost our budget numbers. So can we you not know, do that? One, it reminds me of UT San Antonio that figured out if we, if we have students with $150 on their balance, we, we can, if we release that, get them back into school to complete their degree, they increased completion significantly. I need to go look up that article because I yeah. love it so much. The, they just like had all these people who had like 12 credits needed and they had an unpaid parking ticket and they're like, hey, we've forgiven that, come back and graduate. They boosted graduation yeah. rates for those students. It was, I, I made me very happy. So the other good thing job. Rachel, is that we've talked about being a transfer friendly institution. Yeah. And if you think about that, you know, so how do we how do we encourage students to transfer to our institution? Also, you, you should be transfer friendly on both sides. Yeah. But one thing I was thinking about, especially right now with the enrollment kind of uncertainty is to say, hey, do you have a hold on a transcript in another institution? What's your balance? And if it's under this amount, pay it off for them so you can get their transcript and they yeah. can transfer to you. Hey, which reminds me, so I don't know that I've said before, we're about to start a team spotlight um, episodes of Cap and Gown. So we just have so many awesome members of our team and I've invited them. They're very trepidatious. They're like, Rachel, please, really? When I asked Brayden, she was like, I cannot think of a worse thing you could ask me to do. <laughs> but to her credit, she was like, I will come and join you because, you know, she worked in the registrar's office forever. And what you just said is a thing that she would hundred percent get behind. Like, how do we make the process for students who are stuck with their stranded credits? How do we make that easier so they can come here and be, um, yeah. be successful? So I love that idea. I think it's great. And you guys can look forward to meeting some of our team members and them talking about their expertise. So I'm very grateful. Okay. This is a really interesting article that I'm going to circle back to when we start talking about change. But in university business, they had an article in the last week that um, the title is Experts Weigh In on 2022. Colleges must start operating more like businesses. OK, so I don't know if you saw um, some very big school just hired a president who has no higher education experience. I think he's a lawyer. There's also a lot of um, kind of movement around hiring presidents who are like from accounting or they're entrepreneurs. So they don't have this higher education. And it's because of this idea that you have to start running your school like a business. Um, you have to start talking about ROI to students because it's so expensive. 
you have to start tying this to career outputs because students and and parents are getting more savvy, right? So they want to know what is your career center? What are your placement? Like to help me understand how this is going to help my student get a job. Um, And so especially with the pressure that's coming like from Google, who's doing micro credentials and alternative education paths and all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of pressure to think about our institutions like businesses, which I think there's some balance there, right? Because yes, there are business principles that can be applied to higher education. Matt, you and I are always talking about taking something that is just always true and standard in one industry and moving it over to another and how that can be so novel and super helpful. Um, But also there are some nuances and things that are really special about our institutions that you have to be very careful of when you just start talking straight ROI, right? I think you have to be very careful. So I'm sure as I look at uh, those who have joined us today, that you, uh, some of your institutions are, are run by um, former faculty and from the academic side and others are run by either uh, someone with a, a law background or someone who has been successful in business or on the financial side. The thing that when you talk about running it like a business, as you know, not all businesses are the same. Yeah. If we're running it like, like an oil company that's going to be different than if you ran it like a high touch service oriented business, like the Ritz Carlton, you, you know, if you imagine those CEOs, how would the CEO of Ritz Carlton run a university? I'm behind him. I I like uh, his, his approach to care. There are others who don't understand the difference between a business that runs commodities in a business that is where service is at the center. So for sure. Well, we will circle back to that because I think that is addressing part of the change piece. I think it's pretty important, but it's an interesting sort of perspective on 2022. Okay. And other great news, California is offering their students $10,000 towards college for 450 hours of service work. So it's a new college service program called Californians for All College Corps that gives eligible students $10,000. It is $7,000 for living expenses and then $3,000 for um, education, like an education award to be used for tuition and that sort of thing. Um, They're investing $146 million in this program. Uh, 6,500 college students are going to be enrolled. And so they're just having to say, like, here's your 450 hours that I've done. And then they're going to give you this money. Um, Critics are saying, kind of cautioning, make sure that you're using students for volunteer positions, not that you're eliminating paid positions. And then putting students in there because then you're firing workers and taking this money and giving it to students. So probably don't do that. But I think it's an awesome way to kind of cover what Pell is not covering. And so that's really the goal. Um, Lots of low-income students, eligible uh, immigrants, aims to help students graduate with as little debt as possible. So great. Well, what I like about that, I I think about some of our schools that, that really encourage community service and actually build that in as an expectation. If you're a presidential scholar, we expect that you'll earn this number of of community service hours. I really love that. So I don't know, for a lot of our private institutions, seems like you could do something like this that is more closely aligned with your mission and supports your local community and builds great goodwill for for the town or city that you're in. That's right. It's a win-win. And I don't know if you read this article about um, like rural schools, but a lot of times they're saying schools are in communities that tend to be less conservative than they are. So they may be like the most liberal kind of conglomerate in this town. And so there's a lot of friction between kind of the people who live in the town and then what's happening at a university. It's a great way to build community buy-in to say like, we want to serve you and we want to be great partners to you. And here's how we're incentivizing our students to come and do work that's going to help people in our community. Integrate or expand in the community, not be isolated and separate. Yeah, for sure. 
Okay, on the lighter side, which this this one makes me want to die. So I just want us to all have solidarity with this poor person who did this. Like it's pretty awful to imagine being this person. Oakland University in Michigan accidentally sent emails to 5,500 of its admitted students notifying them that they are going to receive the university's higher highest scholarship, which is an award worth $12,000 for four years. So they basically sent it to every admitted student by mistake. This uh, is your worst nightmare. I would have, I would want to die. I mean, I, I can't, I just, it's awful. It is so awful. So they said it was due to human error. Um, the correction was sent to all of the students within two hours, like, sorry, just kidding. You and I were saying it's like, it was the happiest two hours of some of those students' lives, you know, where they just were like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Dang it. That's terrible. That's a tough recovery. Yeah. Hey, you should do a whole podcast on recovery for that kind of thing. Like, you know, in service recovery, like, what do you do to make that okay? Goodness gracious. That's... Okay. And then the last one I have for you, did you, have you seen this about Ashlyn from California who is at, I don't even remember what institution this is, but it's in the Northeast, Okay. which, you know, has been hit by a gigantic snowstorm. So Ashlyn is out of her room. She's in a res hall with like three other women. She's out of her room and somebody is like, um, hey, I'm so freezing cold in this room. There's snow in here. And she's like, what do you mean? Like our other roommate said it's coming from my room. Is that true? Like I just left the window open a crack. They're like, yes, I think so. And they're like, all right, well, you go get the spare key and go look in my room and see what's going on. Matt, they, the roommates like put on their winter coats because it is ice cold in their room and there's snow everywhere. They open the door. The window is wide open. The bed is completely covered in snow with an inch or two covering most of the floor. Her desk, her chair are covered, like her shoes are covered. There's snow everywhere. Everything is destroyed because of water. And she's like, sorry, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to, the roommates were so kind. They got like a dustpan and they started like scooping it out. And I think they put it on TikTok within like four hours. They got 2.3 million views of poor Ashlyn's room. And she's like, I just didn't know. And a lot of the comments are like, your roommates are being so kind to you because if I woke up with snow drifting in my room, I would not be very happy. Good friends. Well, sure, yeah. Who knew you should you should send a warning if you're in an area which we're about to get hit by a snowstorm. If you're in an area with a snowstorm coming, who knew you had to send an email out to your students and say, make sure your windows are closed. Yeah. You just never know. So poor Ashlyn. It, she's yeah. making memories. All right. So let's move on to change. Like I said, we're going to talk about some of the errors that come when you're trying to make this change. And I just want to say, you know, we really are trying to move from this, this forced off balance because everything's gone crazy for two years to, okay, it's time for us to be strategic and to choose what we need in order to be thriving in our work, but also just personally. Yeah. Um, I want to call your attention to this article. Shona will chat it to you guys, but it's inside higher ed. It's called Making Leadership Matter. It's written by two former presidents. They have a new book called Leadership Matters, Confronting the Hard Choices Facing Higher Education. So I would really recommend you read this article. It's on my book list. I want to kind of dig into this. One of the presidents was the past president of Bucknell University and then Washington and Jefferson College. And then... um, The other one just resigned from Lyon College last year. So it's an interview with them where they go through and they talk about leadership and higher education. And I think it's relevant for our conversation today um, because they really talk about how leadership through change is going to be vital for higher education moving forward. 
One thing I thought is really interesting, and for those of you who are um, joining us through Zoom, I would love for you to chat what you think the answer to this is, because they talk about shared governance that is really unique to American higher education, and they say there are three legs to the stool of what happens at a university. So basically three constituents that are the most important parts of what's happening on our university. So any guesses about what any one or all three of those stools are? Because I had some ideas yeah, and I was not correct. Any ideas you guys about what we might consider? What they, said, what they the said are the three, leg, the three legs of the stool for the institution. Okay, the first one, is the trustees. The second one is the administration. Thank you, Brian. Right, students, <laughs> right, faculty, right. staff, and parents. Right, that's what I would guess. But instead we have trustees, administration, and faculty. And I have a lot of consternation about this. Um, first of all, because my student life, student development colleagues are not recognized in that stool. So that is really distressing to me. But also because we are not thinking of our students as part of the, the foundation of what we're doing in higher education. So Lisa's like, I knew trustees. I knew that was in there somewhere. Matt, do you have something to say about that? Well, I was, I was kind of wondering where, you know, like, um, the outcomes kind of matter. So whether that's, you know, civic leaders or, or, or employers might have some influence on your institution. Yeah, so no, they don't. It's trustees, administration, and faculty. But I also, I, I'm just, I don't know, maybe they didn't want to mention athletics because so many times I feel like Mm. Higher ed is run by athletics. Yeah. All right. So I don't love that part, but let me move on to the interesting part. They're talking about one of the questions they asked in this interview was, do you feel like the issues that we are facing today with COVID and campus shootings and school suicide and racial unrest, do you think that those are significantly more difficult than what leaders have had to deal with in the past? And I really appreciate their answer. They're like, you know, we have gone through some really, really hard times in this country. We would count maybe three inflection points. The first one is the Civil War, where we lost 750,000 men. So you think about a college population, 750,000 men died in the Civil War. Um, and then we had yellow fever right after that. And we had supply chain breakdown. And so in the history of higher education, they count that as one of those inflection points. That was a really difficult time. And then the second one would be the Great Depression, where very wealthy institutions like Northwestern and the University of Chicago were in merger negotiations because they had no money. They didn't think that they were going to be able to survive as independent institutions. And so without the New Deal, they would have either merged or totally folded and then World War II came about. And so it's just really hard to know all of the forces in higher education in that inflection point that people are managing. And then they're pointing to this time right now as a third inflection point, which I think is really interesting. Right. So um, this idea of like we have waged waited through hard times before. It's just we don't have people from any of those inflection points that are still around to help guide us, which is one of the difficulties because we're talking, you know, 80 years ago. And so we don't have those people um, in those. And then they also talk a lot about about how leaders are created during these inflection times and that you just have to figure out how to find a strategic leader not either like a leader who's just like presiding over the campus, like, yes, I'm the father of this campus, and not a leader who's like a bull in a china shop where they come in and they make all these changes, but then they wear out their welcome, right? And people are like, you got to go. You're not being strategic in your changes. You're just changing everything without leading your constituents through this pathway that we're talking about with change. How do you manage change well and with strategic thinking instead of just blow it all up? Right. Well, I think the bowl, I mean, really what we're talking about today is how to avoid being that either the person who just presides or presides over, you know, an what is, is. Yeah. doesn't want change or 
On the other side, the person who is so um, forceful in change that, that, you know, no one wants to get behind it. And so really talking about how do you, how do you balance it so that you can bring everyone on board with really what needs to happen. And, um, and really the thinking about it in terms of opportunity and, and what we can bring to this institution. Well, I think we've all been around a, a bowl in a China shop and, and that for some can be really exciting, um, but it is not sustainable. Yeah, that's right. Um, the last thing I like about this article is they both say that empathy is an incredibly important quality for a president to have. And they talk about things like when your faculty member publishes a new book, you should go and get it and read it and talk to them about it. And when awesome. you have a student death, you need to go and you need to be the chaplain and the encourager and the comforter. And I think it's something, you know, we talk about empathy fatigue, but one of the ways to be a great leader Matt, to your point about service, running our business, our college like a business, okay, but we have to have empathy at the heart because it is a people business. It's why we like this business. Um, and we're not making widgets that we can just turn off empathy and, and apply logic. There's a lot of, like you and I are always talking about, I see you, I connect with you, I'm concerned about you, you're part of our community, let's stay close together. So yeah. I think it's a really interesting um, perspective when we're talking about running it like a business. If you want to run it like, like a, a business again, Horschelzi, or thinking about um, Rosen Harris Rosen, you know, and just how I mean, at the at the center they care. That is true. In hospitality, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that is the State of the Union. Um, I. Yeah, I would like to move over into how we manage change going from a survival perspective into a thriving perspective. I think it's really funny when I told um, my husband that we were talking about change today, he was like, do you mean how it's terrible and should be avoided at all costs, which I think <laughs> is a valid reflection for some people, right? Like that is a really terrifying perspective of like, I don't want change. And you remember, Matt, we talked last week about two, two three, three weeks, weeks ago. ago, we talked about how change is inevitable given what's happening in the world. And so we have to become masters of change instead of just closing our eyes and saying, I'm not, I can't, I can't do it. Right. So that's really this process that we want to walk through over the coming weeks. So a really big barrier, um, in fact, Cotter's very number one barrier to um, change is allowing too much complacency. So let's talk through why complacency is a mistake why we have to be really careful to not allow that to just kind of hang around us. Um, and <clears throat> then some strategies for how we can move from a sense of complacency to a sense of urgency, which I think is uh, a really important first step, right? So Matt, you're exceptional at this. Complacency comes when people say it just is what it is. Like there's nothing to be done. It just is what it is. This is the environment we're in. I'm tired. I have too much stuff to do. I don't have enough resources. I feel like we're going down the wrong path, but what are we going to do? Because it just is what it is. I just have to ride that wave. Yeah. Yeah. And you're always good. I think our team loves working for you because you're like, no, no, nope, that's not how we're going to do things. It's not, if it's not working and it's not good, we're not going to be long suffering. We're not going to have patience and complacency. <laughs> patience is a virtue, you know, for some oh, people, is. patience is a it virtue, is. but that's always like, no, we're not going to be long suffering. We're not going to just hang around in this. We have to have a vision and a way to move to urgency so that we're not just going to sit here and try to survive this wave that's coming. Um, and it's such a different way of thinking about things because it's so easy to get stuck in that. It just is what it is. There's nothing to be done. Right. Yeah. Well, I've gotten in the most trouble in my life when I've tried to go against the status quo or inertia that has been set into a culture. Um, and, and really the, a big part of that is not taking the time to understand what, why are people complacent? 
why don't they feel, why aren't they seeing things the way that I do? Or why don't they feel the same excitement or urgency to get moving on this? Cause it's a great idea. And, and, um, and so the, the first piece, I, I think, you know, there's just um, a lot of people have heard it all. They've, you know, people come and go and they say, oh yeah, I'm going to shake it up. And, and they're like, you know, I've been through this before. I'm just going to wait it out. I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait this one out. Why, why do I need to act now? Yeah. And I also think, you know, I have worked for a boss who the word on the street was he always has urgency about changing everything until he says it four times. You don't have to pay any attention. Right. (laughs) And, and it's really harmful on both sides, because if you are not consistent, if you do not have a vision for change and why we're changing and you're committed to it, then you do come in and say 18 different things. And I feel overwhelmed. And I'm like, I'm just going to wait you out to see if that's actually a thing that's going to happen. Or if that's just you coming in and saying a bunch of stuff. And then I'm supposed to, like I said, like word on the street is unless he revisits it four times, you don't have to worry about what he says. So harmful in terms of a leader, you're not trustworthy because you just, you know, say things, but then also I'm complacent because I don't want to get riled up about a thing that's not real. That's not actually going to happen. That's just somebody saying a thing. Right. I think that that's really important. Um, Also, you know, Matt, we always have this wrestle with creating urgency, which is if, if you're talking to a person who feels like it just is what it is, this is just really stressful. I just have too much work. I have too many hats, which I think a lot of people in higher education is right now. And I say, Hey, we're going to change the way we're going to do this. The feeling of yes, but are you going to resource it? Cause you get to just come in and say, we're doing a new thing. But if you are not actively working to say, it doesn't have to be what it is. I need to try to create space for you to have the resources you need to actually accomplish this thing. I'm thinking about Lisa and Dave, right? How Dave sometimes for Lisa, because she is such a hard worker. And she wants to help everybody and she wants to do all the projects exactly right. And her list of all the things she has to do. So if Dave is going to come to Lisa and say, hey, I have a new idea. I want to change this thing. He better sit down with her list and say, I'm going to relieve you of that. That is not important this semester. We're going to change this. We're going to do this thing, right? Because otherwise, all she hears is you have urgency, but I have to do it. And how am I going to to manage that? Well, I think let's be honest right now for for every, every one of our friends and partners at institutions, you know, there's been so much change that's happened over the last two years. And it hasn't been from a position of, you know, thinking about opportunity. It has, has been from a a more of a threat focused, or we have to do these things to protect ourselves. So there's a, I mean, again, some of the complacency that happens right now is from that position so when you can come to a person and say, hey, I'm going to resource this, then that can get that energy going, thinking, okay, then, then this, is, this is going to move us into a positive, something new and exciting, not just one more thing on my plate that is not resourced. Right, Matt. And one of the reasons I, I said before that I agreed with this idea of change as our theme for this year, because I was pretty resistant to it in the beginning, because I was like, you know, and not only is change scary to people, we've been through so much of it and thinking about, can you do one more thing? Can you do your job this way? Can you do something new? I think people are like, no, I honestly can't. I like the idea of change from the perspective of our urgency comes from the fact that what we are currently doing is not sustainable. We cannot keep doing at this pace with this number of jobs and this, we just cannot do it. And so when I'm talking to practitioners and I'm saying, you have to embrace change because it is the way we are going to make your job more of what you want and more of what you like and uh, loosen all of this stuff that you've just accumulated so that your life is sustainable, basically, right? Because we're talking about macro change, higher education, things are going to be different. We're also talking about micro change, which is like, what am I doing every day? I have some urgency to change it because I'm going to burn out if we do not do that. And so 
a big portion of that is how do we resource, you know, ourselves and, and the people that we're in control of to be able to do that. So um, another thing about moving to urgency, which you and I are really opposite about this, and you do this much better than I do in terms of, of leadership, is this idea that as an individual, I can just bring the energy. So I am, when we're talking about something, doing something new at Ferris, or we're talking about like strategic thinking and what are our goals, my tendency is to want to hold that really close to my chest. Like I'm an introvert. I want to think about it. I don't want to tell people about it because I'm trying to manage it and I'm trying to like will it to happen. And I'm trying to create all of the energy so that when I finally get to the place that I'm ready to tell somebody, Hey, this is the thing I want to do. Like, I just going to like force that out for myself. Right. Cause I've incubated it for so long and it's a mistake. It's always a mistake because if you have a good team and if you have people that you trust, the way that you run our team is like, I, I have these people around me because they're really smart and I have to start talking about it as soon as possible so I can listen to everything that they have to say so that then we can move along in energy together. Right. Um, and I was telling you, we have, we, today we had our staff meeting and, and I have been thinking about our development timelines. Like, here's the things that we need to be building. These are the new features. Here's what I'm saying, hearing from sales. And I've kept that inside um, because I'm trying to manage it. And today in staff meeting, I was like, oh, I should tell our team, like, these are the things I'm thinking about. Well, the result of that is all of our team members then email me and say, hey, how can I help you? Can we do this? I'm thinking about this. This would be one way to solve that. I love that. Here's a great example. They're bringing the energy instead of me feeling like it's my job to just control it and then tell people what we're going to do. Right. And so that is a way to move people out of that complacency, invite them into the process. Well, it is the difference between leading change and managing change. And, yeah. and for all of us to think about. So in order to lead change, I actually have to have people on my team. Right. And I have and I have to get them and and we have to be patient. We have to start that communication. You know, 10 years ago, I was really humbled. Uh, and and that that was when as Ferris was getting started and we're trying to get this thing going. At, and I'm trying to hold on and manage it. We're gonna be successful if I can manage it. And then it was no, the only way we can be successful is to bring people into solving problems together. Yeah. And, and so that, that really uh, changed a lot of, because, you know, we, when you want to run fast, you do it on your own. When, it, right. when you want to have cultural change, you have to bring people into that process. Yeah. I also like this idea of building urgency because it moves us. So again, we, we need to have sustainable lives. We need to have sustainable work. We need to have sustainable future and higher education. Um, but when we speak it out loud and we have that conversation and we invite other people to bring their energy into it, it really creates accountability. So, um, you know, we've been saying with our team, like, hey, what do you need to thrive? That's one of our goals of Ferris this year. We want to keep our best team and we want to help them have a, a life that they're thriving in. And so we've been talking with everybody about that. Well, the fact that we talked about it today, today in our staff meeting, I was like, February is a really hard month, you guys. I'm just going to not devote any time to thriving because I don't have time for it. Like, I'm stressed out. I've got too many things. I'm going to be traveling. And everyone was like, no. No, we said we have urgency about thriving. You are not allowed to just put it on a shelf and say, sorry, I don't have time for that, right? Which if I'm just managing from inside, I can do that to myself. Like I would absolutely be like, Rachel, we don't have time for that important thing for you because you're trying to do all these other things. So having people who are going to reinforce the urgency to thrive and make your life sustainable, I think is so vital to team culture right? You are not allowed to say like that thing's not important that we've all agreed on and we're all moving in urgency towards. So I love that. I'm, and I just, I, I, I think that that team culture, it, leading change is about, is about leading toward a, a culture shift and, and having that accountability is, I don't know how else you start that process. If you're yeah. just trying to hold on, 
you're not leading change. Yeah, for sure. So can you talk about lacking patience with urgency? <laughs> I think it's really funny because you're like, you have to build, you have to plan a lot of time so that you can create urgency, which seems very counterintuitive, but it's really important, right? Yeah, I, I think where I've made the mistake when I was on a campus and, and trying to create change, um, again, all of these things kind of layer on top of each other. But, but and, and again, I am not known for being patient, but it was so helpful for me. Uh, my mentor, Rick Lytle, was like, hey, there are people who are... you." you are an innovator, you, you are at least an early adopter. We have laggards <laughs> on our campus who they, they've been very um, comfortable. And so you have, if you can win them over, you can be successful. But if you can't win them over, then you're not going to be successful with this, what I knew would be culture changing for us. And so I, I think taking the time, again, the taking time to build consensus. How are we going to do that? Well, we have to lay out our case. Why does this, why does this matter for our students? So go back to what are the three legs to our stool? Well, I wasn't thinking about the trustees. I was thinking about, <laughs> first of all, students. And then I was thinking about how that could change the work for our staff and our faculty, and, and then how that can improve enrollment. Uh, so parents would, would um, you know, be really attracted to this. So so the idea of um, being patient in that process, it starts with, you know, what is my case? What, what are the facts? What is the data that I, I need to share with, with even the most curmudgeoned laggard on my campus? So that, um, I mean, for a, a big initiative that I had just to go and sit down and have coffee with that curmudgeon and listen to them. So then I'm better equipped in my arguments for why we need to do this and, and to communicate that with all the faculty. So I don't know, Rachel, the, that is not, that, that was hard for me because I, I just, I have a, an idea and I wanna implement it, we're gonna get going. And I, but I knew there's no way this is going to be successful if I don't have this one faculty member on my team. And yeah, you know, the hardest person to get on the team. It's really interesting because we run into this when we are selling to schools, right? Where it's like, we want the right team, but we, who's going to be thoughtful and is going to raise objections and is going to say this, well, what about this? And here's what I'm worried about. We want to address those things. We also have sold, sold to schools where we sold to one person and it is so much harder to sell to one person. It's easy because they're like, yes, but then you get on a campus and you have no buy-in. You have nobody who's willing to do implementation. They, nobody feels heard about it. And so that balance of like, yes, it's easier to get one person or to go alone. But when you do, you are going to run into those roadblocks when it comes to that change. Yeah. Um, and you and I have talked about one of the mistakes that I think is really easy to make is personal drive versus cultural change. Right. And I would say, I know so many of our colleagues who in the context of what exists, just have personal drive to be excellent, to serve students well, to do the best work they can, to make sure they're doing everything that they need to, because that is how they're built. Right. Yeah. But when you do that and you don't give people the opportunity to talk about what you're doing and help them understand and invite them into the sense of urgency, as soon as you leave, it is gone because or, you're managing, like you're doing it right. Or as soon as you're tired. Yeah. You know? And and I think that that's the other, what we're dealing with right now. It's not just, so of course, I, I think you and I both have this experience where because we drove it, it was it was driven by us. It didn't get down deep into the fabric of the institution. So when you left it, it left with you. I mean, yeah. it stuck around for a little while, but the the essence of it started to fade. Right. And people forget the passion behind behind it. Um, so it, it is why it's so important when we talk about change that we look at it from a I'm doing this because I'm so passionate. It's the right thing to do. It's going to change lives. 
but I have to do it from a culture change perspective so that we can change lives forever, that it just becomes the fabric of our work, not my work or, um, you know, just my team's work, but starts to become a, a part of who we are as an institution. Which relates to that idea of I, I, I'm bringing the energy, right? If I'm bringing the energy, then I can manage everything. But it is not deep energy. It is not campus-wide, hey, we're on a team and we're going to do this thing. It's just what I have to offer. And so when I leave or when I'm tired, that's the end of it. And we don't have like that, that sustained piece. So um, Cotter's really interesting. He talks about complacency is a place where we get stuck. We have to lead into urgency. Um, and he has a couple of suggestions about how we do that. I think he is very much talking at, at this place about macro, how we're, how we're moving institutions and our offices and our colleagues and our teams through. And so I want to talk about that. But I also want to say, you know, I'm a counselor, so I want us to do some self-assessment and micro, like, how are you doing? And I cannot emphasize enough the urgency you should feel to get to a place where you have balance and health and sustainability. Yeah. It is it is for two years, you know, for six months, and then it was a year, and then it was a year and a half, and now we're at two years. And there is a just stress survival, and we need to have some urgency about saying, I need balance. I need to reassess. I need to figure out what to do. So Matt, the first thing he says when we're talking about a group, did you have something you want to say about that? Well, and, and to get to thrive, right? right. So right. I, I have to, I have to, I have to get to thrive and I need my team to get to thrive so that we can all uh, encourage each other and get there. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that he talks about, the way that we battle this idea of complacency and we move people over into urgency is discuss. We have to discuss, 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 which we've already said, like we need our team's energy. We need to lay those things out there. Um, you and I have talked before about the thinking hats, which I think uh -huh. for higher education is incredibly important because remember I've said like, Higher education is about being a critical thinker. And so sometimes when you have an idea and you're like, I want to invite everybody to the table, I'm going to go to the coffee with the curmudgeon. I want to hear all of the criticisms. People can think their job is just to criticize instead of how could we be optimistic about this? If it works, what are the things that could happen? Right. So I think those thinking hats are so important to this piece of let's get the right team and then let's have conversations about what are you worried about? But also, what if it works? Can we imagine a world in a year where we're all we've all moved to thriving because of the choices we made? How awesome would that be? What would that mean for us, right? Being able to really control the narrative so that we don't get dragged down into because let's be honest, people do not like change. There is always a good reason to just keep doing what you're doing. You understand it, it might not be good, but at least you know it. Right. And so it's really easy when we're talking about change, especially when we're tired, just to, to stay in that black hat and to not then explore some of those other possibilities. So I think it's a really. Um, so if, if you haven't heard Rachel talk through the hats, um, go back and, and listen to our podcast where we talk about thinking hats because it's really good. It is a great exercise, a great way of thinking about every, everyone's role on the team, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So we have to discuss, I also would say, I understand that if you have a team that you don't fully trust the idea of discussing an idea to move to urgency is kind of terrible, <laughs> right? Like the reason we want to discuss with each other is because so our Ferris team is the best team I've ever worked on. Everybody on our team, I want their brains on whatever the problem is in any realm of my life. Like, yeah. I just want those brains to help me think through and figure out because I trust them. Oh, and man. so it's mutual. It's like, you can say, Rachel, that's a terrible idea. And this is why. And at the same time, so we laugh in our office because I'm often saying like, hey, I feel very strongly about this. I think this is the right thing to do. I can be persuaded otherwise, but I feel pretty strongly about it. And the mutual trust where they're like, she's thought about it. She's saying something that makes sense. I trust her. 
And Z's ability to be like, Rachel, that's a terrible idea. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm like, help me understand. You're right. That is a terrible idea. Right. So that the ability to be flexible and to understand back and forth, here are the perspectives different people bring. And I trust that we are on a team searching for the right, the best answer, the right answer um, to help us fulfill our goals is just incredibly important. And I know that that is not a luxury that everybody has. So that is my caveat to that. Absolutely. Did you want to talk about using data to help us understand how to move people to urgency? Well, I, I, so if you think about your, um, the work that you're doing right now, maybe you have an initiative. So in, in your area, or if you think about some of the big things that are happening on your campus that you're excited about, um, you know, what, what are, what are ways that you can, so we've talked about Chip Heath's book, I think, um, making numbers count. It's a, it's great. It's a way of breaking down. So I love data. I'm a data geek. Um, but how do you break it down into a measure that would be compelling to your audience, the, the faculty member, um, some the, the, uh, Dean of the library, what, what is the measure that that would matter? To them and and so being able to communicate that so when we talk about well what happens if if you have 24 more students retain than the year before well that that's an entire accounting to 11 class you know so yes. when so like what we're talking about is filling up this classroom uh with students who otherwise we would have lost i just think that when when we're thinking about the opportunity in higher ed right now when we're thinking about things like in the beginning, when we were, we were talking about just helping um, remove holds from transcripts and things like that, or being transfer friendly, what could that do? Being able to use data helps tell the story. And so I, and I create know. that sense of urgency, right? To be able I, to see like the reason we're addressing it now is because it is important right now for these students. In fact, we were just on a campus and I was so happy with them because we were talking about Spark. And we were like, when do you want us to run this Spark analytics on your retention and persistence? And we went back and forth. And finally, the practitioners were like, can you give us data that we can work on right now? Can you tell us students right now that we need to be working on so that we can get them where they need to be to increase retention? Yes, we can. Okay, that's the data that we want, right? Yeah. We're not going to be complacent and say, oh, well, well, I guess we don't have it now. We'll just wait. No, we want the data so that we can increase that sense of urgency um, for our team. So I think that's a great. Okay, so the second thing um, that Cotter talks about, we've talked about complacency and how that's not really helpful. The next thing is that you don't create a sufficiently powerful guiding coalition. So let me say it again, because there's like four really important words in there. Sufficiently powerful and then guiding coalition, that this is the idea that you really are just going it by yourself or that you're kind of willy-nilly putting together a group, but you're not thinking really hard about who needs to be in this coalition to help us drive our change. Um, this, so this, is the, this is the part where it compelled me to go bring the curmudgeon onto my team. So because I knew the amount of, of leverage his voice had in a room. Yeah. And I didn't want him on the team, but if I couldn't win him <laughs> over, I'd never win. Well, so what, yeah, what Cotter says is like, hey, there's four things you have to consider. You have to consider positional power. So you have to have all the people in the room so that there's nobody outlying who then can block your movement. So if you don't have this guy in the room and you have all of these people, if he has positional power, and you guys say, we're doing this thing. And he's like, no, you're not because you didn't listen to me and you didn't invite me in. So you have to make sure that you're thinking about, do we have the, enough positional power in our coalition so that we're not then going to be blocked by somebody saying, "You, I'm sorry, sorry, you thought about that, but you should have asked me, you can't do it. The other <laughs> thing is expertise, which I really love in terms of, do we have a diverse group of people in our coalition that's going to help us make informed, intelligent decisions. 
Because what I am sure is true, if there's somebody from the opposite, so I'm in student development and they're from academics and I'm like this, if I don't have that voice represented, I cannot make an intelligent informed decision because I'm missing half of the perspective, right? Uh, It's a total blind spot. And, And you might think you know enough to cover it, but you don't. That, yeah. you know, on our team, Braden's always great at telling me what the blind spot is. And she's always been great when, when, you know, I've had an idea and she's like, here's all the ways that you're not thinking. It's always so we been can great. Manage it. Yeah. So we can manage yeah. that. So having those different um, representations in every way to be able to say, I don't think you've thought that through from the perspective of whoever I'm representing, right? He also says that you need to make sure that you have credibility on your team. So you need people with good reputations (laughs) who can vouch for this change, vouch for the work you're doing. You want there to be visible people who are are thought of highly um, in your uh, institutions. And then the last thing he talks about is leadership. So somebody to lead. Through change, we need leaders and managers on the team. So managers, I love because they're like, I'm going to help this stay in control. But then leaders are the ones who are, again, providing that sense of urgency and saying, this is what we're doing. We're going to move through this change process. This is why it's important. This is the vision. This is what we're going to do. And so I think as you're putting together your dream team in your head in terms of change, do we have experts? Do we have positional power, right? Do we have a good reputation? And then do we have both leadership and management to help us as we're thinking through our guiding uh, coalition group? Um, do you have something you want to add to that? I've got a lot more, but, but oh. you know, we, well, we've talked a lot, Rachel, about just creative power. Yeah. And, and I think, so it's helpful to have the conversations and have those discussions with the curmudgeon. I don't want them on the team so much as I want to understand what the objections are so that, I, so that our creative team who are operating in terms of future and growth and opportunities that we can, we can work on the challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I really, I, I think when you have someone who's trying to hold you back from being creative, they're trying to hold you into the, all the reasons why you can't do a thing. I like to know what the reasons are, but I don't like, um, I, I think that that can suck your creative power away. So, yeah. Um, I am thinking about team, my, um, marriage and family therapy faculty member would be so happy for me to be, remember this term homostasis, which we talk about in relationships all the time, which is like, we are holding the line. We have these parameters. The best way to think about it is like a thermostat. Like you set the thermostat and it's monitoring. And then when it gets too hot, the air conditioner turns on. And when it gets too cold, the heat turns on. So that the good thing about a guiding powerful coalition, it it keeps your parameters. You're, you've spoken your goals. You've said we are going to change these things and they're going to constantly be helping you monitor. Are you in that framework? Don't go crazy. Don't go all the way over there. That's not what we're doing. We've defined our change. And so we're going to be constantly closing that feedback loop of, yes, we're doing what we need to be doing. Yes. We're, or wait a minute, we're way out of our parameters. That's not what this group was created for. Right. So I like a good team that's going to say, hey, let's stay on task. Remember what we're trying to achieve um, in our our time together. So being focused on that goal and also working together well as a team is really what will will bring you that powerful guiding coalition. And, And I think so there's more to say as we continue to work through leading change um, in that next step. So taking this as we've we've kind of started to build urgency. We start bringing t- people together. Uh, we, we build our coalition. Then we start really packaging up our vision. And, and that's what I want to talk next about uh, on our next cap and gown, Rachel, is, is how do we move then to, to, as Cotter says, you know, developing your, your vision and your strategy and then being able to communicate your change vision. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to unpack in that. But um, ultimately, in these two steps uh, of creating urgency and then your, your guiding coalition, the role of trust in this is so important um, that, that you are working with people who you can trust, they can trust you, they, you, 
so you don't have to worry that they're going to sabotage yeah. the process at this stage. So that, that would be my last piece on that as you're building that coalition, that it's a group of people who give you creative power, but also um, that you can, you can trust that they're on, they're on your team. Yeah. So as I always do action items, you guys, I would be assessing micro and macro for places where you are complacent, where you have said it just is what it is, what it is, and there's nothing to be done. Um, think about that personally in terms of your work. Is it sustainable? Are you, can you move towards a place of thriving? And then also professionally, like how in higher education, are there places where we've just been complacent and said, yeah, there's nothing to be done about that. And I would challenge that thinking for you to move towards urgency in that. Also talk with your team, the stress, stress and pressure, like I said, like I do where I'm trying to manage all of that internally. There are people who want to move and change with you. And so releasing that and having those conversations and having the patience to build the urgency um, for your team, I think is really important. And then lastly, we're always encouraging you to think about the champions on your campus, your creative partners who are going to approach any sort of change with that. Okay, here's what we can do, right? Here's some ideas I have. Here's ways we can solve those problems. Those partners are just so valuable in general, but when you are trying to change and move from surviving to thriving, they're going to be great resources for you, um, kind of starting from a place of, yes, how can we, instead of, nope, there's nothing to be done about that. So those are my action items for you. Um, strongly suggest you get the book. It's a great book. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Sherry Woosley. I'm super excited for her to come. We're going to talk a little bit about um, career and ways that we're feeling kind of weary, but also some really great things we can do. And then the week after that, I think Matt will be back with me and we will continue our work and change. So you guys be encouraged. You do great work. Thank you for spending time with us. Yeah. Have a great day. Have a great day.